Welcome to a further discussion of Engin Eisen's inaugural lecture at the Open University, delivered on the 7th of February 2012. I'm joined today by Rada Ivekovic, who is an advisory board member of the Okimeni project, and by Professor Engin Eisen. My name is Jack Harrington, I'm the Publications and Publicity Manager for the Okimeni project. Welcome. Thank you. Uh, so I, I have the pleasure uh, of uh, being able to ask you several questions and to engage a uh, conversation with you uh, about your lecture, which was really thought-provoking, and I hope you'll have the opportunity to develop some points. Uh, you called your lecture uh, Citizens Without Frontiers. And you said yourself it's a paradox because we know there are frontiers, there are borders, there are borders and boundaries, and uh, citizens do not easily get across. And sometimes, very often, they don't get across at all. Uh, in fact, we have this... Uh, one of the possible ways of seeing it would be to say there are citizens and there are migrants, and migrants are those who are not citizens and they do not enjoy citizenship rights. And then citizenship in itself uh, seems to be fading away in, in post-industrial countries in the sense that uh, uh, it becomes more and more passive. Now, I would like you to start by uh, trying to identify citizenship and to define it. Thank you. Thanks, Rada. Um, the, the point you're making about the citizens and migrants and the fact that we have a, a phenomenal migration around the world, people moving from one jurisdiction to another and not with necessarily uh, rights that go with that is, is a significant phenomenon. And there's been a considerable discussion about um, the regimes of citizenship that govern mobilities of migrants either to facilitate or inhibit them depending on where they're uh, located. What I wanted to do with this uh, lecture is to shift the focus a little bit. Of course, this is a very complex phenomenon and there's so many layers to it. One which we, um, I felt failed to or so far did not pay enough attention to, not so much as the migration phenomenon as involving bodily movements of people, but people who begin to expand the rights and responsibilities of their membership beyond the frontiers that bind them. Aren't they migrants? Aren't the migrants those who try to do that? Sometimes they're migrants, sometimes they're not. So I wanted to shift the focus on the acts, what kinds of things people are doing when they... Uh, go beyond their territories. So going back to your question, though, how does citizenship operate today? As you mentioned, I uh, stress a couple of times during my lecture that it's a paradox to use the phrase citizens without frontiers. I want to use that paradox, that paradoxical phrase, as starting point to begin to problematize why for certain things boundaries are hard and fast, and for certain other things, they're quite soft and permeable. Now, which things are they soft for and which things are they hard for? It's very complex. Um, first, things, we have to also uh, talk about people, but just if we just think about things, uh, for commodities, for money, for drugs, for those kinds of things, um, depending on who is doing the movement, it's quite permeable. 
So these things are um, going through um, frontiers and boundaries with fair... So commodities get through? Most commodities get through. Of course, that is also very complicated. Nation states and corporations try to control because it is about regulating markets, markets that are most profitable for whatever the commodity is in uh, question. So we've seen this, for example, in pharmaceuticals industry, the the complex interrelations of copyrights, um, uh, patent rights, and so on, made, for example, the production of um, AIDS-related drugs very uh, difficult to produce and market in Africa. And international pharmaceutical companies, multinational corporations, were adamant in uh, using these patents, making sure that cheap products were not produced. So even in commodities, whether they cross boundaries or not, it's much more striated than... than Commodities are one element, but then you have capital and you have work or labor. Mm. Do they uh, move equally? And then you have people. Right. Yeah, they don't. Obviously, mm-hmm. again, there's so many layers of these movements. Um, capital, depending on the type of capital and depending on its origin, they move much easier across the world than labor. And in fact, they are not unrelated because the smoother the capital can move and the less smooth and more strided and inhibited the labor movement, it becomes more profitable for capital because capital's ability to move is related to labor's inability to move. It gives its leverage. So, for example, if we had complete free movement around the world today, capital would not find it so easy to operate in China or India as cheap as it is. Um, So what, what capital benefits from is that labor is relatively immobile, but capital is mobile. But these points have been made in the literature. There We have Um, interventions by political economists, international political economists, and so on. What I wanted to do is to shift the focus from movement of bodies into what happens, how do people call into question these boundaries by what they do with their acts without necessarily requiring movement. That's why I chose that particular movement, the moniker uh, without movement, um, without frontiers, as it were. Um, And I wanted to just sort of understand the logics by which they operate and what we can learn from the experience they accumulated over the years. And that's why I wanted to just start with that paradox. Now, going back to the um, paradox, citizenship is understood as membership within a state, properly national state or nation state. And without the boundaries of that particular polity that binds one, confines one, that membership is practically useless. So it is really within the confines of that membership that one can operate, one can uh, claim for rights, one can constitute oneself as a claimant of uh, entitlements and so on. Um, What happens when one actually moves is very tightly regulated. And under certain categories, those movements are made possible. For labor, under certain categories, we allow people to move. Uh, For travel, we allow that. And then the third one that's of interest to me is that professions, because they have been able to establish transnational 
fields in which they can market their expertise, for which they can uh, receive remuneration, um, they have been able to institute themselves beyond nation states. So, for example, architects, for example, uh, journalists, for example, lawyers have now transnational markets in which they how is operate. That, how is that independent from the logic of uh, capital? You think they uh, can do uh, things on the side, these professionals, and get across borders regardless of what uh, capital uh, dictates? Um, it's not independent from uh, capital, but I don't think of capital as one. I I am with Bourdieu on this. There are several forms of capital. Oh, okay. Um, there's economic capital, uh, financial capital, there's social capital, cultural capital, and then they don't map onto one another in a straightforward manner. So it doesn't mean that one has cultural capital that is easily convertible to economic capital. There are other conditions that have to be met for that conversion to be possible. So then there are different forms of capital and professions are using these opportunities, different forms of capital. Professions are specifically um, adept in producing and accumulating expertise a particular form of symbolic and cultural capital. And it is that form of capital enabling them to establish transnational um, markets. Now, the paradoxical and the difficult question I asking is, what capital does the citizen have? Thinking, abstracting for once from other kinds of capital that a citizen may or may not have access to, Purely and simply as a citizen. What is a citizen? Do you mean the individual citizen or do you have a definition for citizenship and citizens in general? Okay, currently, if we use it in the way in which now understood, it's membership. So a membership of a state with rights and responsibilities. My understanding of citizen is a political subject, a, a subject who constitutes himself or herself. So... Individual, you mean the individual citizen? I say subject. These subjects can be individual as well as collective. Uh, there are different types of subject. In fact, most of the acts that I'm interested in, they're collective subjects. Um, collective subjects not because in the sense of sociological idea of social group, but collective subject in a complicated way, in the way in which Bourdieu talked about how they can come together, assemble, and act as collective subjects. So, for example, Doctors Without Borders is a collective subject. Of course, it involves uh, individual people to assume that subject position, but it enables group of people to act under certain capacity. Now, when that's the case, in the international order today, we don't have collective subjects' ability to move across frontiers and act politically. Let me give you an example, an impediment. This depends on the definition of what you mean, acting collectively. I would see uh, migrants as as uh, group subjects uh, uh, moving across the borders and acting collectively with the difficulty of understanding them in a sociological sense because uh, they uh, keep uh, uh, changing. It's not always the same. This is why mm. we don't see them as a, as a movement. Yeah, but... Again, I want to shift the focus from migrants. Um, it's not because unrelated. It's not because it's um, not part of the question. 
But when we look at the uh, contemporary politics today, migrant politics, immigration politics does not uh, exhaust all forms of politics. And with the increasing attention on migrant politics, we're coming to a stage where we seem to be talking about two forms of politics that cro don't cross. On one hand, politics of the inside, all those citizens who have their um, rights and responsibilities, which get subsumed under questions of integration, multiculturalism, and so on. And on the other hand, the question of the politics of those who move. And what I'm interested in is what about the politics of those who don't move, but... But that's the other side of the medal, isn't it? It's the other side of the medal, those who it move is. and those who don't move. And uh, the, the ones and the others uh, do some acts of citizenship, as mm. you say, in different mm. uh, conditions. And also they are part of uh, what was uh, called, what used to be called the civil society. Now, I don't know what you think about the civil society. It would be a good question to ask. Uh, uh, because you have been mentioning these associations that work within what is traditionally called civil society. As you know, there are people who contest uh, the civil society in its uh, Western, uh, modern um, definition, such as Partha Chatterjee, uh, by the way, in, in, his, in a lot of his work, but in the politics of the governed, Right. There are Chinese who contest uh, Partha Chatterjee because their own uh, concept of society, civil society, is different. They call it Minjiang in the China's greater China and so on. There is one, Guang uh, Xing Chen, who, who, who works on this and is in, in the constant debate with Partha Chatterjee. And these people got away from the Western modern model of civil society and... Uh, the from the away from the traditional concept of citizenship which is a originally a western model but they uh, got away uh, from it by getting through it and critiquing it from inside now uh, what do you think about civil society is that anything that is it at the background of what you are talking about um i don't really um see the usefulness of the concept civil society for the kinds of thing I want to describe. Um, to begin with, in its origins, even before it is uh, revised and changed, in its origins, it establishes a relationship between state and citizen and intermediary institutions that regulate right. that relationship. Right. But it is still considered within the state. It's confined. Now, there are those who think that there is an emergent global civil society. Is there? Yeah, uh, for you example. You think there is? No, I don't think okay. so. Uh, but John Keane, for example, and others who have written extensively about global civil society. The concern I have about global, that it is too homogenous way of describing what is basically fundamentally heterogeneous, multiple layer, very complex set of relationships that don't map into from scaling up the idea of civil society to global civil society. To begin with, in its origins, civil society is considered, as I said, intermediary institutions yeah. that regulate between state and... Well, at the global level, we have neither the citizen, in that sense, nor a global institution 
There are no global institutions. So the global civil society remains work that needs to be done, but I am not convinced that it is producing enough interesting material for me. So then, um, coming back to your comment about civil society, um, still it understands it in a confined way. So here is my problem, that the paradox. If one does not want to reflect on these developments with the global society, global civil society lens. And one, if when one does not want to confine it to the boundaries of the state, and one does not want to focus on migration alone, on the movements of people, what vocabulary do we have? Migration is about? never alone, in my opinion, but okay. <laughs> what vocabulary do we have to think this about this This is what I was going to ask this, you. Well, we do not have it. Okay, we, shall we develop it? And that's what Are this Are we project, working on, on, on a new vocabulary, on new concepts? Is this also an epistemological project? This is also an epistemological problem, and then this is what my invitation is. Of course, I'm using the term invitation here really uh, by believing it, because I don't think, either by delivering the inaugural lecture with that title or the subsequent book that will be published, that I actually solve a problem. If I can identify a paradox, a problem that we need to address that requires collective attention as an invitation to think differently about contemporary politics, that I would then think that I, it, it will achieve its um, uh, aim. The problem we have at, at the moment, there's so many heterogeneous uh, acts that are happening from, as I mentioned, from Anonymous to uh, WikiLeaks to Gaza flotilla, to um, uh, uh, no one is illegal. But don't it's, you think there have always been different agents? There have been, but I think um, there's an in, there's an uh, increasingly integrated world in which we live, and the crossing frontiers are gaining intensity. I am not one of those who believe that everything stays the same, and I'm not one of those who say that everything has changed either. So, you know, all the debates we went through in the 80s and 1990s about globalization. There's, oh, there's no globalization that's happening or the nation state is not losing its power and so on. Um, along those lines. Um, so there's in contemporary politics a situation where there's so many things happening and the vocabularies with which we work are really inadequate for a variety of reasons. One of them, of course, it's not mapping onto the spatial geographic categories we have to describe politics. But on the other hand, also, we're, we have developed these vocabularies with a particular trajectory of the West. And so we now are facing, at a minimum, double challenge. On the one hand, rebuild trajectories, retrace genealogies of the ways in which we have come to invest ourselves in basic categories of political thought, citizen, subject, polity, community, sovereignty, connectedness, all these words need to be and, and concepts need to these be These are your concepts, right? Okay, uh, I was just going to ask you to map your con uh, concepts and to, to, to show us your conceptual apparatus. Can you uh, repeat them? We said. Um, well, I should then take a yeah, step back okay. and start with. Give the whole the, picture of your concepts, how they hold together. I okay. wish I could, <laughs> but <laughs> I could give it a try. Ones. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, 
I say that because really I'm finding difficult that along the way I produce number of concepts and have given sort of new meanings to the already existing concepts. I'm constantly called upon to provide a bigger picture or sort of a, a, a coherent picture and finding it difficult. But my basic starting category is the act. What I want to do is rather than starting with processes, such as processes that have already been inherited in political discourse, such as globalization, such as postmodernization, such as subjectivation, and so on. Take these and start with the process and look for instances of these processes in actual empirical um, world, as it were. That operation is not working for me. The basic constitutive element of the way in which I think is the act. Now, what is an act is a very difficult um, question. I'm going to sidestep that now. What is an act? But when something happens that is not an event, but is a deed, it's not just simply uh, something that talked about, but something that brings something new into the world that is recognizable, interpretable, visible, sayable, articulable. Then there is an act. Then how do we investigate these acts? So the first set of vocabulary has to do with how to investigate these acts. Acts produce subjects, so we have to think about actors who are involved in acts that are produced by them. And then acts intensify certain sites. They bring into sites of contestation into being. And then there's their scale or reach. How far, how deep, how wide a given act had resonations. Um, and then finally the issue of duration. How long an act actually lasts? Is it a moment? Is it a century? These are all very complex sort of vocabulary around the issue of acts. Now, from the acts, when we begin to think about how they traverse frontiers, and traverse is one of the uh, elements of the vocabulary rather than across, traverse is a topological term, which means it's not just simply crossing, but crossing over, coming back in different shape, um, building paths, leaving traces, these kinds of relationships of connectedness. And when acts traverse frontiers, they do these in two ways, symbolic frontiers and actual frontiers. Symbolic frontiers are things like um, identities, um, identities, uh, subjectivities that we inherit or we are given. So, for example, I say for someone to be able, to, a black person to be able to act on behalf of, for, and in defense of an indigenous person is a traversal, has a traversal quality. So we have come to identify ourselves in contemporary politics increasingly and dangerously so as beings who can only act in their own interest. What I want to symbolic traversing is that Beings who can act in the interest of others, with others, and in encounter with others. This is the symbolic one. And the um, actual one in the geographic that we can also relate to and act on behalf of, act with things and people who are elsewhere. And it is that traversal quality. So traversal is a significant concept of this. Are you... Um 
tackling there the uh, concept of uh, representation uh, because you said uh, speaking on mm. behalf of oneself and speaking on behalf of the others politically this is uh, called the figure of representation mm. so does it work does it not work because I have the sense that lately with citizenship in in these uh, blase rich countries and declining now in Europe uh, citizenship doesn't work uh, so well and representation doesn't work so well uh, anymore and here we tackle also the question of Of democracy so what is your view on democracy does democracy come into the picture mm-hmm. would you agree with uh, Chantal Mouffe that there is no democracy without borders and is uh, representation a useful concept for you mm. um, I don't agree with the term democracy there is no possibility of democracy without borders because we, first we already give too much primacy to what is understood by borders we already enclose it and Also, saying that there is something that cannot happen is too foreclosing for me in terms of thinking about possibilities, thinking It's about... It's very foreclosing, yeah, right. Yes. Yeah, openings. Mm-hmm. I am much more interested in openings, possibilities, potentials on the one hand, and on the other hand, people who actually make these happen. Uh, people make investments, people make affiliations, people invest themselves in various solidarities. What those solidarities open up as possibilities must remain um, open for discussion. So I cannot uh, agree with a, a foreclosing statement. But the question of democracy and representation, I wish my, um, my colleague Mike Sayward was here because both concepts that he really um, pointed uh, in, in different directions, both on democracy and representation, His book, Representative Claim, for example, is an excellent intervention on the question of representative claim. How do claim, how do we form claims to represent things or people and how they are negotiated rather than uh, pre-given? Claims, yeah. Neither of concepts, neither concept actually entered into my vocabulary in terms of uh, analytical category. Mm-hmm. But in a broader issue... Coming back to what is called identity politics and the kind of dilemma that we got ourselves into by questioning the liberal democratic self, this simple and pure citizen who is not affiliated with anything but stands as an abstract person. Um, we have criticized this over the last 30-40 years, but we have come to a point now where... Um, Critics such as Zizek are pointing out that um, separating identities such as uh, women or sexualities or this or that, various, we have paid less attention on either intersectionality or my preferred term, their traversal qualities that people's People are not only one thing. You mean the commonalities they have? Commonalities they have, similarities they have, uh, things that they bring them together, but not for uh, forever, not for yeah, yeah. Uh, for certain points, at certain um, intersections, how they get assembled, reassembled, dissolved, understanding these complex formations uh, where politics is is performed. That, I think, is the problem that 
we are now tackling with, as opposed to um, juxtaposing a differentiated group differentiated citizenship on the one hand and the liberal democratic citizenship on the other. The picture is much more complex. And if it wasn't complex enough within state boundaries, this picture, frontiers and their permeability for various things has made it even all the more so. So we now face that complexity in understanding political subjectivity. Taking into account all this complexity that you have described so well, uh, one is puzzled to see you come back to the concept of citizen and citizenship. So if I look at your last sentence in, in, in that speech, is this, your, is this your last word? Uh, you're looking for a new figure that can acquire capacities to act simply and purely as a citizen. After all you've said, that seems un insufficient. Mm. <laughs> Shall we still call that figure a citizen? And, <laughs> and do we really want to be to act simply and purely as a citizen, or do we want more? If it is more and something else, what is it? At one level, my response is, why should we want more? Um, what is the will that drives us to I would say a to political will, maybe. A political will. But if there is a figure that if there is a figure that um, configured a politics for us for the last 2,500 years with that name, and if we currently have a political system, political situation, a political configuration in which that figure both legally as well as socially matters, um, I don't see the point of abandoning it. The point for me is to resignify it, open its boundaries, make it function in different ways, make it function in creative, inventive and um, imaginative ways and contribute to its function in that resignified way. To me, it's at once modest, but also a very demanding uh, claim to make that. But then I don't want to go further than that and say that somehow a given figure has exhausted its possibilities, that we must find a new name. First, I don't think that's a theoretical choice to be made. I think this is a choice that people will make in their acts. If a point comes where um, we come to a situation where people who enact themselves as subjects have no use for that concept, that we are in a position to legally dispense with it, that we have invented other ways of naming our relationships and particularly the figure of politics, then we will use that word. But I don't think that I am qualified as someone who theorizes about these matters to either invent a name for that figure or even suggest that we should invent. So you think that the, the new, um, maybe the new names and the new political configuration will come out of practice and not out of what uh, uh, scholars uh, like yourself 
may think or want. I think so. I mean, and in in here, I politics don't wanna... of the people in the sense of uh, Rana Samadar. Politics of the people, yes, in Rana sense, but with one qualification. I don't want to also go um, on the other side where um, appear disingenuously modest. I think we have a role to play as people who use analytical concepts. Um, we have a role to play. Uh, even that sounds so a trite, really, role to play. We are political actors in the way in which we produce concepts, in the way in which we circulate analytical concepts. So this is not a question of taking a particular position subserviently, waiting for people to make their inventions so that we can use their vocabulary. But on the other hand, giving certain uh, credibility and primacy to what people do in their lives, and then how we can participate in connection with what they do to enrich our analytical vocabulary to understand those unfoldings and where and if it becomes possible to invite people to reflect on those categories which we uh, which we produce about these political events. So it's a bit more complicated than you know just following what people do and take the vocabulary from that. And it is also more complicated than dictating to um, even imagining to dictate to people what they should be using in their uh, actual political struggles. Do you mean to say that uh, the, um, if we were to dictate uh, the terminology, do you mean to say that uh, the terms we might suggest would be uh, normative, oppressive? Because one could say, this is how I see it uh, in my analysis, that, for example, the concept of politics and the political is completely normative because there are people who act politically but don't recognize themselves as... Uh, you see, And also it depends on the language and the country and so on. So uh, is your um, scientific modesty linked to the awareness that our concepts are normative? I think our concepts have normative elements built into them, but they're not merely that. Um, they're, they're a mixture um, of various elements, and so when we're using they're them They're also for, performative and so they're on. They're performative, yeah. they're uh, analytical, mm -hmm. um, they are communicative, they are... Um, also constitutive um, in the way in which they are performed, they constitute, they create certain possibilities. So the concepts with which we work are, are, are very complex. That's why I am comfortable in providing analytical vocabulary to understand the things that I want to understand. So I'm actually rather uh, liberated in providing, for example, I use sites, scales, subjects, durations, I borrow from various parts of philosophy of science. In terms of producing an analytical vocabulary, I'm rather comfortable and liberal, as it were, in the small l sense of that term. But on the other hand, making a shift to describing political events to people who are actors in those political events, I'm much more reticent and, and what you call modest. 
I would rather not do that. It's an invitation to think with uh, the political events. That's why I'm not so keen to come up with a new word that is going to replace citizen. Yeah. That, that's it's, why it, I would rather hold back on that. So citizenship and the category figure of the citizen is the one I have. And the one that it has a relationship to my own experience and my own um, political configuration in which I'm embedded. And it is in that sense when I'm using that term, it has resonance, it communicates to people, and it has a meaning. It is that meaning that I want to resignify, change its functions, see how it can be bent, how it can be put other uses, and that itself is the political. But I think we still have a, um, a problem of translation there. When we go to other cultures and other languages, languages that are not European, for example, when you say democracy, this is a, clearly a term which comes from ancient Greece. Uh, when you talk to the Chinese about democracy, they get irritated not only because it's a, it's a modern Western concept, but because uh, it does not refer to any uh, uh, chi Chinese antiquity or... or, or ancient uh, concept. They have their own. So you talk to them about uh, democracy, they will respond through harmony. And uh, it's, it's like this. It's not uh, uh, immediately translatable mm. or else. Yeah. So uh, do we have to uh, work in the direction of, of translation? And uh, do we have do we need to be attentive at concepts that can really be normative, such as the concept of caste the western concept of caste for india which is mm. which is a normative concept exclusively for india by the west mm. right and the, the the their own experience of their uh, social inequality mm. is different and doesn't uh, have that name mm. um i can't speak for the concept democracy and its translatability across uh, cultures but i'm less convinced about untranslatability of uh, citizenship only when we actually inflect it differently. If we take citizenship as given in, in its recent history, as membership in nation-state, its translatability is questionable. I uh, accept that. But if we inflect it with new meanings and open it up for conversation across cultures, what meanings we should then invest this particular figure with is the work that we need to do. So... When we begin to speak about citizenship to and with other cultures, it's not a question of its adaptability or its adjustability, but it is also trying to find a vocabulary with which we can talk about the common political. Mm -hmm. If out of this, and in a way this is the essence of the uh, Citizenship After Orientalism project, if out of that a concept or a figure emerges that no longer bears the signs of that figure citizen, then that will be fine. But at the moment, the conversation, the starting point, the first gesture, this is the name we have for political figure. And I don't think that it actually doesn't have uh, traces in other cultures because we if inflect it as political subjectivity. It has as, with modernity. It is present everywhere. Yeah. But beyond that, I think... For example, I looked at the Ottoman conception of entitlement and right, haq, and Ottoman Islamic culture had a very strong sense about entitlement, haq, and um, 
um, claimants of just other cultures have it too. Yes, yeah. China, India, in China, sure, India. Sure. So when we shift our understanding of citizenship in encounter with other culture to political subjectivity about claiming, instituting oneself as political, on the axis of justice, injustice, then the instances of that is much more common. Than we think, and these are the traces. These are the connections that we have to actually um, discover. Very good. Roger Bekovic, Ingi Nyson, thank you both very much.